0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our uh, now traditional uh, "Ask the Experts" Friday morning session. It's uh, really a pleasure to have all of you back online, and we have a special treat today. Uh, our own Dr. Shriver is here uh, in the studio, so you will see him. Uh, in uh, uh, I hadn't seen him in a while, so it's uh, you know it's just wonderful to see celebrities in real time. And I asked him for his autograph, and he actually gave it to me. Uh, so. Uh, but uh, But, welcome, we have a really interesting session this morning. Obviously, John will provide uh, his traditional update with new information, fresh information from the literature of what how we 're doing with covid nineteen i think he 'll give you a perspective also on what 's going on around the country and and how we 're going to be dealing with this in terms of the outbreaks elsewhere uh, and then we have a, you know just a real treat we have. Uh, John Frasinelli, Stephanie uh, Knudson, and Michael Muldeck again from uh, DPH and the the school systems uh, where they're going to give us information about uh, uh, school readiness. Uh, And and this is aligned with uh, the governor's announcement yesterday that the schools will be reopening in the fall. And and so this is going to be an interesting experiment in how we do it. And we we obviously have to learn a lot and I think it's going to be quite interesting and many of you probably have questions. A couple of announcements before I pass it on to John. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, the grand rounds—the last grand rounds for the season—and then we'll go on uh, uh, on a break for July and August. Tuesday at eight o'clock, we have uh, Dr. Albert Coe, uh, who uh, from from Yale, who is in the—he's uh, an infectious disease epidemiologist, uh, really a world expert in uh, in, the, in many topics, including leptospirosis and uh, and, and obviously now COVID-19. Uh, Will be speaking about the, uh, the the governor's task force for reopening Connecticut, and he is in the task force, not just for Connecticut, but he's in the tri-state uh, task force. So please join in. It's going to be very interesting. You can ask him directly, sort of the thought process of of how we're doing things in Connecticut and Albert. a good friend, great speaker, very good person. Um, and then uh, on seven three July third, a week from today, it's a, it's a, the we're celebrating the July fourth holiday on Friday. And so we will not have this session. It's a, it's a national uh, holiday for us. Uh, so we, we will not be joining you that day. Uh, you know, enjoy the holiday, the, the celebration uh, uh, for, for independence for our country uh, on that day. We'll resume on July 10th, again, with Dr. Shriver back on. And then uh, we have a real treat for you as well, Dr. Richard Antaya, who's one of the A pediatric dermatologist from our colleagues down south is going to be talking to you about uh, issues about telemedicine with dermatology in the COVID era. So I think log in, and you'll you'll hear you know really uh, very good presentation and good questions for him. Um, And then uh, grand rounds will resume virtually on September 1st. So we we will have the last one. Uh, You know I really want to thank our our medical education team. They've done a tremendous job of getting uh, information out to you. We've gotten some really positive feedback from each one of you uh, please let us know if there's something we can do better but i'm just uh, uh enormously uh, uh grateful with liz anderson who's here in the studio today uh she is the the force behind uh, a lot of the things that happen and also nicole uh and they've been working very hard and then the folks behind the the cameras uh um, you know philip and, and Steve and, and scott i mean you you uh, you don't see them but they want to ma- they make sure that this actually works really well so my really sincere thank you to all of them for what they do, and uh, but uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask Dr. Shriver, the real Dr. Shriver, here in the studio, to come up and uh, introduce his uh, session, and then he'll pass it on to our speakers, our guest speakers. John.
1: Thank you Juan, uh, it's so, so nice to be here, and uh, certainly a tribute to the state of Connecticut and everybody's hard work to allow... Um, people who are at risk to be out and about a little bit more again. So it is my absolute pleasure to be here. Um, This has been an interesting week. My comments for the week are, unfortunately, um, this is already out of date. You know, we can expect a robust national resurgence. Unfortunately, that has happened. And as as a country, uh, we did not all do what Connecticut and New England did at the same time. and uh, unfortunately that has left areas of the country vulnerable and uh, playing catch up uh, and actually probably duplicating the new york uh, challenge it is what it is and thus the pandemic in this country is not nearly over we know masks and physical distancing work i had my temperature taken i wore a mask coming in Um, everyone's exquisitely sensitive to that in this organization and Frankly, uh, if we can continue to do that and operate safely, and whether we go to a cafe or whether we go to work or stay at home, we will continue to be able to get done what we need to get done, which is keep COVID under control here. It's all math, not politics. You know, go to Arizona, and, you know, if you ignore masks and distancing and you have an R value of three or above for this virus, it's very contagious. You will have a rapid increase in new infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, It is just mathematics, and when we can move away from the politics and focus just on the math, we will conquer this epidemic. This virus does not obey state boundaries, and I will talk about that. And remember, um, the virus is our enemy. We are all Americans in this together, and application of science, not politics, will end this pandemic. Now, Connecticut uh, this week, um, again, a tribute to hard work of everyone hospitals the governor's office dph and citizens all over the state we are in a much better place we're, we're hovering around 20 to 80 cases a day deaths are almost down to zero uh, if we double down and keep doing what we're doing even as we carefully open up i think we can continue this um and and this is really uh, if only uh, the entire country had done what we had done at the same time, we would be in a much better place as a country. But New England in general looks pretty good right now. This is Connecticut this week. Now, uh, this is the United States. Uh, we are leading the world. We're leading the world in the magnitude of the pandemic in this country, unfortunately. And uh, you can see uh, New York, Boston, That's actually fading a bit, um, and uh, we have tremendous hot spots in Texas, Arizona, and three or four of the southern states. And so, unfortunately, since people travel, uh, airlines are flying again, uh, we are going to be uh, challenged with the importation of new cases all over the country. This is going to be a problem. Now, this is Texas, and the reason I'm, you know, I showed you Arizona last week, which really was an uncontrolled epidemic. It continues. It hasn't changed. Texas is a challenge because are 29 million people in Texas, it's as big as many nations in the EU. Uh, they, are, they have an out-of-control epidemic in their big cities right now, and a drastic action will be required, much like Connecticut. And if they do and do what we did and others have done successfully, New York State, uh, they will have about four to six weeks where they can drive this curve back down. But it's going to require cooperation of the populace and a unified message from the government in Texas. So far, uh, that has not been the case. And by the way, Texas is predicted to run out of ICU beds by the end of the summer. This is actually already out of date. Um, They are running out of ICU beds probably in July. So uh, again, an unrestrained epidemic in Texas. Uh, They will run out of ICU beds shortly. This is going to be relevant to us uh, here in Connecticut. We're we're doing well with PPE now, and we're doing well with supplies for testing. It is my belief, as these states ramp up their epidemics, that it's going to siphon away supplies. We may be challenged, again, getting adequate supplies here in in Connecticut and other states. We need to be very careful to watch that going forward. Now, this is the United States. This is a great uh, comparison. If you look at the European Union on the bottom, who had actually a very similar outbreak across the EU, with Belgium leading them uh, in the outbreak, uh, you can see they've driven it down uh, to a more tolerable level, about 4,000 cases a day. Remember the EU's and the 300 millions, if you look at them collectively. Unfortunately, the U.S. never really broke that down to the level of low community transmission. And now this is already obsolete. We're over 30,000 cases a day in the United States, uh, at which was our peak in April. Um, this is not sustainable and will lead to thousands of unnecessary deaths. So. Uh, We have a challenge moving forward. Now, uh, what could you do about Connecticut? Uh, Dr. Salas? and I were talking, we could build a wall all around the state. Uh, That might work. Um, We're really good at building walls in New England. They're all over the place, but they bring people in. Everybody loves to look at them. I don't think that's a viable solution for our state uh, and, frankly, for any of the New England states. But, you know, we like walls. We have lots of walls everywhere. They're not going to keep people out. But what will work and something that was introduced this week will be to have travelers from states with these high rates that you can see on the map and you can go to the Johns Hopkins website every day and check uh, to quarantine for two weeks and, and to stick with that. And I think if we do that, we have a fighting chance of keeping Connecticut and New England and the other states that have this under control in a good place in the coming months. So, But this is going to be important and it's going to involve all of us collectively working on this, because you can't do it mandatory. It's going to really be social pressure to make sure people comply with this. So travel plans this summer. This is easy. Go to the Johns Hopkins website and their other websites. Green is good. You look at New England, it's pretty green. We're driving the cases down. It's not perfect. We still have cases. Be vigilant. But it looks like you could travel. You could go to Vermont. You could go to Maine. You could go to Rhode Island. You could go to the Connecticut shore. All good. You can see a couple of states in the far west that, that have very few cases, but then in general, as you go south and west, there's a lot of COVID. So if you're traveling, don't travel to those states unless you want to come home and quarantine for 14 days uh, and uh, potentially bring it back into the state. Go to the green states this summer and, uh, and I think it will be a safer model for all of us. And it's certainly what we're suggesting to our employees. Now, there's a lot of scientific advance in the last week. This report came out. You know, we're trying to understand the pathogenesis of this organism, and one of the ways to do it is attacking multiple organs uh, in humans. We can now make from stem cells, we can make organoids, which differentiate into the cell type in the organs, and this organoid uh, is actually intestinal tissue, and you can see the white uh, replicating COVID uh, variants. And so we're now able to, in a tissue-specific way, see how the COVID virus is interacting with those tissue-specific cells, kidney, liver, intestine. This is going to be really important as we design more effective therapeutics to stop the damage that this organism can do when it binds to the ACE2 receptor. So stay tuned, but I think, again, a lot of progress almost every day uh, in trying to figure out pathogenesis. Now, um, other treatments that have now been shown, I think, to be effective, uh, IL-6 blockade, everyone thought it would work, and it, it, it's not as dramatic as we would like, but IL-6, an IL-6 block, or the most common one we use, improved survival of very ill uh, COVID patients on mechanical uh, ventilation. Unfortunately, it's not a randomized uh, controlled trial. You probably couldn't do that anymore right now. Um, and it was observational, uh, but it, it seems to have a positive effect. Uh, this was is, is in press and chest and came out of uh, Connecticut, out of Yale, the Yale program. Now, um, a lot has come out in the last month about ABO, and it's been a little squishy, but this is not squishy. Um, in this study, which was in the New England Journal this week, they looked at the genes that are turned on, and, and, and they looked at, in a very detailed way, severely ill COVID-19 patients with respiratory failure, and, indeed, two gene locus loci pop out, the ABO one pretty prominently. And it seems pretty clear now that A um, uh, individuals with A blood type may be at higher risk for severe disease and infection. We do not understand this, but the genetics are supporting this observation now, and we need to figure this out. So, type A uh, blood types don't do as well uh, as B and O, and uh, this is going to be interesting to understand better about this in the future, but it seems pretty solid now. Um, A very interesting study, seroprevalence, and this gets back to understanding children. Are they getting sick? Are they not getting sick? Are they spreading it? So this looked at IgG antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 in Switzerland outbreak. And they got—they uh, did a prevalence test of uh, just grabbing everyone they could to get antibodies, and this is what they found. They found that about 10 percent of the population, the 20 to 49-year age group, were, had been infected. And that's kind of where I think we're going to be seeing in the U.S. Um, they found about 10 percent in the 10 to 19 age group. But when you looked at the 5 to 9 age group, only about 1 percent were positive serologically, suggesting that they weren't getting infected that much, or at least if they were infected, it wasn't enough to generate an immune response. So we don't understand this. There's been some anecdotes in the U.S. that this seems to be true and in some other countries. So it may turn out that children are not the super-spreaders here. It may turn out that it's young adults and others who are infected and then out and about socially uh, who may be more likely to be the super spreaders. And this factors in to the state's decision to try to begin to see how we can engage our children in school and other places safely moving forward. And you're going to hear about that in just a few minutes. But these are the kind of data that are guiding us to make some of these decisions. Intriguing. We don't understand it. There is some thought, well, maybe children are, have been infected with coronaviruses that are cross-reactive. You know, colds are coronaviruses. Maybe that's why they're not getting infected. I don't know, and I'm not sure that's correct, but it does seem to be a correct observation. And stay tuned for seroprevalence studies in the US. They are coming. Another uh, observation, it seemed like individuals who are on um, angiotensin-converting enzyme blocker blood pressure medicines weren't getting more sick, and people were thinking it's okay. In JAMA, just a couple of days ago, it turns out that that's correct. If you're on an ACE inhibitor, you can see the hazard ratio of getting infected is no greater than anyone else. And um, there's also the mortality rate. I don't have that table, but the mortality rate was the same if you happen to get it. So it doesn't look like um, the ACE-type antihypertensive Pose a risk. And I think that's very important for those people in the population who are on these medications. It seems like it's probably okay. Now, the race for a vaccine, what I'd like to do over the coming month as we get into July, I'm going to do a deep dive in each of the types of vaccines that are kind of churning through to try to get out there commercially. And you can see um, there's about 100 vaccines out there being talked about. Uh, Ten are in phase one, which is early safety tests. About eight are in more expansive phase two trials. And there are two vaccines already in efficacy trials. I'm going to talk about one of them. Uh, None of them obviously are out and approved yet. And if we're lucky, maybe there'll be one by the end of the year or or in spring of next year. Almost all the vaccines are targeting the spike protein. This is the confirmation that shows you um, the various structural permutations. It is amazing that we have figured this out in very short order. It's a tribute to the technology, science, and inventiveness of humans that we're able to do this. But this is the main target, and this binds to the ACE2 receptor and, and appears to be the entrance point for this virus into humans. Let's talk about the adenovirus vector vaccines first. That virus, uh, that vaccine, um, is one that's gotten a lot of publicity the last week or so. Uh, there are two versions: ones in China and ones in the UK. We're going to talk about this. And how does this work? So the adenovirus virus, which is a respiratory virus, is rendered unable to replicate by removal of genes from the virus. You genetically engineer it to be unable to replicate. It's alive, but it can't re- live in the virus term, but it can't replicate. And then you insert the DNA for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein into that virus. And then the virus, if you administer it to a human as a vaccine, it infects a human cell. The protein's expressed, and the human makes an immune response against that spike protein. And adenovirus vectors are used in humans commonly for cancer therapeutics. There's a lot of experimental therapeutics in cancer currently. Some gene therapy trials, not all of them, that have come out well. Uh, And there are clinical trials in progress, but no licensed vaccine for Ebola, TB, and some other pathogens. So, you know, new technology, it's been applied to some other areas of human disease, not extensively uh, to prevent infections. This paper came out this week from China. Um, This is an adenovirus type 5 vectored vaccine. Now, adenovirus type 5 is a human adenovirus and thus gets into the problem of having adenovirus vector vaccines. Human adenoviruses, many of us have been exposed to already and have an immune response to them. And unfortunately, what seems to happen is that if you've been exposed to adenovirus and that you've given a vaccine with it, you immediately have memory, and you sort of fight off that infection, the vaccine's not very effective. So in fact, this is what happens. So this vaccine was given to people, just published, it's very reactogenic. First of all, so um, uh, in other words, you get fever. Fifty percent uh, get pain at the injection site. About half got fever, and about ten percent got fever of 38.5. That's significant fever. So, it's it's very immunogenic, reactogenic. Um, pre-existing immunity to adenovirus five reduced the response to the vaccine. And in fact, only about 50 to 75 percent of the volunteers had a fourfold rise in neutralizing antibody, not quite as good as we would like to see. And so, and then, you know, no one's gotten a booster dose. So you can imagine if you gave booster doses of this, say COVID ends up being an annual problem. I'm not sure the adenovirus vaccine will be good for that because you've already, you'll, you'll make antibodies to the vector. You'll make T-cell immunity to the vector. And the second time around, it may not work very well. So this could be a one-time vaccine effort that could be very effective, but probably not annually. So. Keep that in mind, and these are, these are my thoughts about uh, the adenovirus. Now, the big one that's very active in, in literature and, frankly, in the newspapers um, is the UK uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. What they've done, because they were worried about people having pre existing immunity to the adenovirus vector, if it was human, they've used a chimpanzee adenovirus that nobody, no human's been infected with, and their thought was fine, there'll be no pre existing immunity to this. And uh, and this is well-advanced in human trials, and it's actually getting into efficacy trials, and I don't have the data on that yet. It has not been published. There are phase three trials in Brazil. This is the official, uh, one of the official website things. And by the way, warp speed uh, U.S. funds have been dumped into this vaccine from the United States government. So this is very active. It has a lot of support. And, and the positives would be you could literally make millions and millions of doses of this. I mean, it, it would be less technically challenging to crank out millions of doses than it would be to use a kill vaccine, vaccine which would require growing all that pathogen. So uh, this is where we are with this. The company claims they could manufacture 2 billion doses. Well, I'm not sure any horseshoe crab would survive that, but we'll see. I showed you that last week. You know, they all have to be tested for endotoxin, but we'll see. Maybe they can do 2 billion doses shortly. We don't know. Now, uh, the other challenge I think we're going to see with the chimpanzee-based adenovirus vaccine is the public. Uh, And this is, I do want to tell you a little story about that. And you may or may not know the history of the smallpox vaccine. But in 1796, Jenner observed that mates got cowpox, which was on their hands, uh, from cowpox. And they didn't get smallpox. They seemed to be immune to it. He observed this took some cowpox from a dairy maid and uh, took an eight-year-old child. The IRB would never approve this today, obviously, and inoculated the eight-year-old uh, named James Phipps with cowpox. And then a few weeks later, he actually inoculated that kid with smallpox and found out he didn't get sick. Obviously, our IRB would not let that happen, and rightly so. But now the press had a field day with this and and the attitude of the public was you know oh my god you're using cows and this cartoon is from the late 1700s and shows everyone Jenner inoculating lots of people with the cowpox vaccine and by the way vaccination came the word came from this because it was the vaccinia he named it vaccinia and uh, that's where the word vaccination came from and everyone if you notice in this cartoon they're all getting little cows growing out of their face and hands and I can just see a cartoon uh, of chimps coming out of people if we give the – so you laugh, but you'll notice on the – if you can see that, it says the Anti-Vaccine Society uh, published this cartoon. This is 200 years ago. Nothing's changed. I just want everyone to be aware. So, uh, so keep in mind, um, one worries about a reactogenic vaccine uh, that causes a lot of fever and is based in chimpanzee um, adenovirus about public acceptance. We just have to keep that in mind. Now, there is a successful commercially licensed adenovirus vector vaccine, and it's a good story, it is one, and it actually is a vaccine for raccoons. And uh, Canada, as well as the Midwest, uh, is trying to keep raccoon rabies out. And the east coast of the United States has a lot of raccoon rabies. It's not a good thing. It spreads like wildfire. So they are air dropping bait that has an oral rabies vaccine with an adenovirus vector-based vaccine, and it works. The raccoons see it, and they eat it, and they get immunized against rabies, and then raccoon rabies is not spreading into Canada. Actually, has been blocked around the Ohio uh, area, too, is from the same air dropping, and this is the commercial vaccine dropped from an airplane in Canada. So um, we do have one vaccine that works, and raccoons, thank you for that. But so far, none in humans in terms of infections. We do have cancer therapies. So this week's good, bad, and ugly Our region continues to have markedly fewer new cases and deaths. Um, I believe it's a – you watch the rest of the country. This is a tribute to the leadership in this state. It's a tribute to DPH in this state. It's a tribute to the population of Connecticut who rolled up their sleeves and got to work and made this happen. Um, And I think uh, it's not time to relax, but we should take pride that we've worked hard and we have saved lives in Connecticut and, frankly, all of New England. Um, There are new rules on quarantining from hotspots. It will be very important that we stick to this, and we do not want to reintroduce COVID into the state. Critical to continue to use masks and physical distancing. Just because it's summer and you walk into a cafe doesn't mean that somebody might not be an asymptomatic carrier, or they may have just come from Florida. Put on your mask, continue to do physical distancing, and we will get through this. Unfortunately, large portions of the United States are in epidemic crisis mode. It is what it is. Um, It was preventable, but it's here. Um, There are many thousands of new cases daily. Uh, The hospital beds are filling up, and there will be deaths. And unfortunately, that curve that predicted around 120,000 deaths in the United States has now shifted to about 200,000. So um, it, it is what it is. Let's work hard to make sure we keep our area under control. The good news is there is incredible rapid pace of research on pathogenesis, treatments, therapies, and immunization, and I'm confident this will result in a scientifically based solution to this pandemic in the coming months. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really pleased that we have people from the Connecticut Department of Public Health and uh, following me up to answer, uh, I think, some of the questions about the direction the state's going to uh, uh, with education and some other um, aspects of policy. Thank you.
0: Thank you, John. Uh, now we're uh, uh, gonna ask uh, John and uh, Dr. Knudson and uh, Michael Boldock to uh, give us their presentation. Can you guys hear us? Yes, we can. Okay. Yes. yes, we can. Perfect. <laughs> Thank, great. Thank you very much for being uh, present this morning, and I'm going to pass it on to you. I think you, uh, either we or you have the slides, I'm not sure.
2: Uh, I think Maybe. Stephen's going to advance the slides for us. All right, so. perfect. So let's keep moving. Thank you. All right, perfect. Thanks. Good morning. Um, my name is John Frassinelli. I'm a division director at the Connecticut State Department of Education uh, in the areas of school health, school nutrition, and family services. Uh, I'm joined by a couple of my colleagues today. Uh, their names and information is on the screen. Um, before I turn it over to them, um, I wanted to first of all say thank you for having us uh, for this important conversation. Um, as some of you probably saw yesterday, and what was as was mentioned earlier on this call, uh, the governor held a press conference yesterday in part to announce that schools will be reopening uh, for full time in person attendance for students beginning in the fall. There will be additional guidance coming out on Monday with regard to that. Uh, There's a 50 or 60 page document that we're in the process of developing that has specific guidance on a number of areas uh, including special education, physical education, uh, after-school programs, child nutrition programs. So uh, the details of that will be out on Monday. Um, And as you're also aware, um, health assessments are required uh, for students prior to Enrollment in public school or prior to entry in public school, also in grades six and set or seven, and grades nine or 10. Uh, we Last week, we sent a memo to school superintendents that was issued by uh, Acting Commissioner Deidre Gifford from the Department of Public Health that addressed immunizations for the beginning of school. Um, and I will be forwarding that to you following this call. The Department of Education will also be sending a memorandum to superintendents, probably the beginning of next week to address health assessments. Essentially what we're um, saying to superintendents is we understand uh, what the law says around school assessments for for entry and at those uh, different times during the school, uh, during the child's education. And that boards are permitted to deny attendance for children who fail to obtain the health assessments. Again, we understand the challenges and the scheduling for in person uh, health assessments and those physicals. And we are encouraging boards to prioritize uh, allowing children to attend school wherever possible. Um, there are concerns that over the last couple of months, for social distancing, there were <clears throat> a certain percentage of students who didn't engage or didn't engage fully. But um, we're, a lot of, The decisions around this um, with regard to uh, entry are allowable under uh, local control, the local boards of education, but we are reminding them of the responsibility, but also um, going to be working with them in the future to ensure that to the maximum extent possible, uh, children are able to uh, enter school in the fall, given the additional uh, restrictions and safeguards that are gonna be put in place for in-person attendance including social distancing and face masks um, and changes to schedules and things like that. So for some of the details around immunization requirements and guidance, and, and, and prior to that, Dr. Stephanie Knudsen is going to talk specifically about the health assessment uh, requirements, and I will turn it over to her right now. Thank you.
3: Good morning, everyone. And uh, as Don said, I'm Stephanie uh, Knudsen, and uh, I work uh, for the state command, uh, the state, the Connecticut State Department of Education, um, supporting children, school nurses, and school health, all things school health and health education as well. So, just talking a little bit about health forms and immunizations. As Don said, uh, for fall 2020, the expectation is that. Um, health assessments, full health assessments, that is, um, will be required for children who are being enrolled as well as um, for those who are in attendance. But again, we're encouraging uh, school districts um, coming out of the impacts of COVID, still in the impacts of COVID, experiencing that anyway, that um, uh, school districts will be supportive and allow children to be able to and families to be able to have some time in order to get those full assessments done. So there are two, uh, there are two health assessments that are provided by the State Department of Education. We have the pre-K uh, or, or early childhood health assessments and even prior to pre-K as well. So we have for zero through five years old and it's uh, commonly known as the yellow form. And then we have or K through 12 forms Uh, for kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, and those are the school health assessment forms. And those are commonly known as the blue forms. On those forms, at times I hear from our constituents about different aspects of the forms, why do we have these different uh, requirements on the forms. And just to be clear that the screen, all the screenings that are on the forms, whether it's um, for vision or hearing, scoliosis, things like that, these are all legislatively mandated screening requirements. And so the blue form and the yellow form as well, those uh, uh, specific Items that are located on those forms. They're legislatively driven. And so that's why when we say we would like to have a full assessment done, children's career. As I said before, that health assessments are required. And so it's so important that uh, school nurses are able to see a full assessment um, going forward. If you look to the right of that slide, you'll see school, uh, State Department of Public Health and Mick Boldak, he's going to address those immunization requirements after I'm through. Um, but uh, just so you also know on the uh, health forms and the reason why we put that side by side because a requirement of the health forms is also that children are fully immunized as well too. So that's the requirement in that uh, form. If you can go to the next slide, please. So again, recommendations and considerations, we talked about COVID impacts. And I think John mentioned already that well-child visits given uh, were just not available during this time as we were trying to socially isolate and um, uh, just uh, providing well-child visits for those very uh, vulnerable children, uh, the younger children under two, two and under. And so physicals and immunization for school-age children were delayed. Um, However, again, Uh, we're looking to make sure that uh, those children can have their full health assessments. And slide please. So we have, um, if you're looking for um, information about uh, the the legislative mandates around what's required on a health assessment form, uh, it's under Chapter 169, School Health and Sanitation Law, and there's a link there. As well as if you're looking for health forms, if you have run out and you're looking for health forms. Those health forms are on the State Department of Education's uh, website and those uh, links are there as well. And I think at this time, I'll turn it over to Mick Boldock, my colleague from the State Department of Public Health. Good morning, Mick.
4: Good morning, Stephanie, and thank you. Uh, thank you everyone for having me present today. My name is Mick Bolduck, and I've been an epidemiologist and the vaccine coordinator for the state immunization program for the past 30 years now. Uh, I know one constant that I can say is that immunizations is never boring and uh, that is definitely the case now with everything going on with COVID and with flu. Um, Definitely interesting times right now. Next slide, please. So uh, what I wanted to talk about a little bit today uh, was not only talk about the immunizations that are required for school, uh, as John and uh, Stephanie had mentioned, uh, but also take a look at some of the trend data that we have seen since the pandemic, um, both nationally throughout the United States and then also in Connecticut. Take a look at our current two-year-old immunization rates, which have been pretty pretty good and hopefully will continue to be pretty good despite some of the challenges that we've been facing. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on vaccine development because Dr. Schreiber did an excellent job on that, uh, talk about the importance of flu vaccine for the upcoming season, and then uh, for those of you who are not familiar with our immunization system, CTWiz, uh, just touch upon that as well. Next slide, please. Um, so this slide is very busy, has a lot of information on it, but I want to point out two things to you. The top graph is illustrating the sharp drop-off in the number of doses distributed nationally after the U.S. declared a public health emergency on March 13th. The solid blue line represents the cumulative change in non-influenza doses, and the dotted blue line is the change in measles-containing vaccines. Uh, The bottom graph depicts the number of measles-containing vaccines administered by age groups. The dark blue line is less than 24 months of age, and the light gray line is for 24 months to 18 years of age. You can see for those that are less than 24 months of age, the impact has not been as severe. So if there is any good news in all of this, that is some good news. Uh, Most of what we are seeing and hearing from providers here in Connecticut is that the well-child visits that were postponed were mainly for school-age children and above. Uh, They tried to keep the uh, visits for under two-year-olds prioritized and uh, many in Connecticut did continue to receive their immunizations on schedule for less than 24 months of age. Next slide, please. So this is data that is specific to Michigan and has a very robust immunization registry. We were not able to generate real-time immunization data from our registry right now, but eventually over the course of the next year, our CTWIS system will be able to generate this kind of data. I just wanted to give you a flavor for what's happening in other parts of the country. Uh, The vaccination status in Michigan, they were able to take a look at kids at 1, 3, 5, 7, 16, 19, and 24 months of age, assess that between 2016 and 2019, and then compare that to the same time in 2020. And what they saw among children five months of age uh, for up-to-date status, it fell from 67% to just below 50% due to visits from the pandemic. So it had a dramatic uh, dramatic. Dramatic decrease just in that short uh, time frame due to the pandemic. Next slide please. So here in Connecticut specifically, if we take a look at the doses distributed and we take a look just at the first five months of this year, you can see the numbers uh, in the first two months of, of this year we were doing pretty good. We were above average actually in January and February, but then you take a look in, in March we were down 13% and then in April when we would expect numbers to actually increase because that's when kids are going back to the doctor's offices when they're receiving their their kindergarten doses of DTaP and polio and MMR and varicella, we were down 43%. We're down almost 40,000 doses, which is huge. In May, it recovered a little bit, we were down 34%. So hopefully that that April timeframe was where we hit rock bottom. And in May, we're starting to see a little bit of a recovery. We don't have the full numbers for for June just yet, but in talking to some doctors over the last couple of weeks, it seems like uh, kids are starting to come back in and we're hoping that we can get kids caught back up. Uh, We did do a survey of providers to try and find out if they were gonna be able to get kids caught back up over the summer months to try and find out if we do need to delay or have a grace period for back to school. And um, the providers felt that they could get kids caught up over the summer. They might not be able to have them caught up by the first day of school, but they felt they could get them caught up shortly thereafter. And so um, that memo that um, John Frazzanelli had mentioned that he's gonna send out to you, we are not going to delay or have any sort of grace period for uh, school immunizations for this fall. We are gonna keep everything as is and hopefully get everyone caught up as quickly as possible. Next slide, please. Uh, As far as our immunization rates go, you can see the National Immunization Survey data at the top for 19 to 35-month-old children, and that's for four doses of DTaP, three doses of polio, one MMR, one Hib, three Hep B, one varicella, and four doses of pneumococcal conjugate. That's the full complete series, Uh, and the U.S. rate is a little over 70%. The Healthy 2020 goal is 80%. Connecticut is halfway in between there at 75%. So, We've been doing a pretty good job, uh, but we do have a ways to go. We're above the US rate, um, and we have received some national awards in the past, but again, we do have some some work to do there. Next slide, please. Not gonna spend a lot of time here on the vaccine for COVID, because Dr. Schreiber did an excellent job on that. The only thing I will mention, as far as vaccines go, CDC does want us to assume Uh, and it is a big assumption that there will be a vaccine for planning purposes. Uh, Assume that there will be a vaccine available by the end of this year or early 2021. I think the one thing that we can agree on is whenever there is a vaccine, whether it's late this year, early next year, uh, that it will be in limited supply. And so the first people that will be getting the vaccine will be first responders, will be healthcare providers like yourselves, uh, will be high-risk individuals. And so Uh, That's what we're planning for right now at DPH. We're working with local health departments, we're working with uh, pharmacies, um, and that's the assumption that we're making, that it will be in limited supply. Next slide, please. So as far as the flu uh, situation goes for this year, it is recommended for all individuals six months of age and older. Uh, Vaccine should be administered as soon as vaccine is available and should be administered before the end of October. So one of the questions we always get is, you know, when is the optimal time to get flu vaccine? Well, I think this year more than ever, don't wait. Uh, We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know if there's gonna be a second uh, wave of COVID. Hopefully there's not, but um, we don't want people to wait. And um, if there is a second wave, then people probably won't go out and get a flu vaccine if they haven't already. So when those supplies come in in August and September, people should go out and get a vaccine as soon as possible. Uh, We are expanding through the Connecticut vaccine program and making available flu vaccine up through the age of 18. So we're expecting our first supplies in, hopefully by the first or second week of August. And so uh, for those providers that are getting vaccines through our program, we will start distributing that as soon as those first doses start to come in. And now on the national level, CDC is making a a very big push to try and improve the national rate even in a good year uh, flu vaccine rates throughout the country are only about 50%. Uh, and that shouldn't happen. We, we, as a nation, should do much better than 50%. And so they're um, really going to try and publicize. They're giving money to states, including Connecticut, to try and really push for uh, a better percentage. And so we're going to get a lot of money in, in the next couple of weeks to try and improve that and do a media campaign around flu. And they're also making uh, flu vaccine available for adults late season flu vaccine available for adults. So we're gonna be getting doses in in November and uh, December to try and improve those rates as well. Next slide, please. So I had mentioned our immunization registry. Uh, For those who are not familiar with it, um, it used to be called CERTs, it's now called uh, CTWiz. And so it's a new registry, a web-based registry as of September, 2018 and it does provide one-stop shopping. So you can do your vaccine ordering, your doses administered, uh, bi-directional data exchange between the IIS and your electronic health record. Next slide, please. Um, It's replaced certs and it has many new features. um, And uh, this is a system that uh, uses a vendor out of Colorado called Envision. Uh, 20 other states and jurisdictions are using this application as well. A couple of key points to remember with CTWiz: all children are automatically enrolled in CTWiz unless the parent signs a form and opts out of the program. And currently our opt-out rate is only uh, a little less than 1%. So we have very good compliance with this. And then secondly, all providers who administer vaccines to the program, uh, to children, are required to report the information to CTWiz. Next slide, please. So previously with CERTs, uh, with the old CERT system, DPH staff would be manually entering in all that information history uh, sent in by providers. And so it was very labor intensive and very time consuming. Now with CTWIS, providers are actually able to enter the doses they administer directly into the system or by electronic data exchange through their EHR system. Next slide. So as of June 10th, we have about 159 clinics that have been electronically onboarded into CTWiz. And also school nurses have read-only access and we have about 600 school nurses that can get read-only access in there. And they can actually look up a child's immunization history and they can print out an official immunization certificate as well. Our goal is to have all providers reporting and ordering through CTWiz by 2021 and there is my contact information and I'll be happy to have, uh, take any questions if you have them. Thank you for your time this morning.
0: Thank you very much, uh, John, Stephanie and Mick. A really informative presentation uh, and uh, and also for Dr. Schreiber. We have about 210 people online that are listening and we have a number of questions that have come up. So the um, the, the first one is, um, this would be for, for either one of, you know, Mick or any of you, uh, uh, the, will we get priority delivery of flu vaccine over the retail clinics? Those That's from pediatricians asking. So maybe Mick, I'll, I'll ask that for you. <laughs> well, um, we don't,
4: We don't have control as far as when it comes out. So what I will say is as soon as we get the first doses in, we send them out. We don't wait. So some other states wait until they get a a sufficient supply before they send them out to the pediatricians. As soon as we get that first dose, we send a memo out to all the pediatricians and let them know that the doses are in. So we have four different formulations. Uh, We will let the uh, providers choose whatever formulation they want. And so as soon as the first dose comes in, whatever formulation it is, we send a memo out. I send a memo out to the providers, letting them know the first doses are in, and, uh, and then they can order. Whether it's that formulation they want or not is up to the provider, but we, uh, we don't hold on to any doses. Once they're in, they can start to order.
0: All right. Thanks. Uh, the next question is, uh, this, this will be for, um, I, I guess, Dr. Shriver and any of you uh, online can Commenters. Do you have any advice on how to safely give flu vaccine that we usually give in flu clinics with a patient every five minutes? That does not seem feasible in this COVID environment. Uh, John Schreiber, any, any ideas? Yeah, you we...
1: know, first I'll back up and saying I, I really appreciate partnering uh, with um, the Education Department at DPH today. Those numbers showing the fall off in pediatric immunizations are alarming and we have a window of opportunity this summer our caseload of new covid patients is very low uh, the hospitals have emptied out most of them and i think it, it is our opportunity collectively as a community to get these kids immunized and catch up before school starts so i urge and whatever we can do at ccmc to assist that we will do um, i really mean that i think in terms of immunizing well children given the low number of new cases in the state at the moment Uh, If people wear masks um, and you have PPE um, and you're screening for fever and we do what we need to do for the kids coming in, I think you can maintain probably not the same volume, but a pretty brisk volume. But there has to be screening at the front door. The parents and child need to be screened for absence of fever. Hopefully, the parents will agree to wear a mask and we can get get these things done quickly. So given the low community spread right now, it's very low. Uh, I feel comfortable saying you could probably maintain good volume. It may not be what you used to do because you have to do that screening at the front door, but I think you can do pretty brisk um, immunizations now. Uh, Thank you. John, if you have any thoughts on that as well.
0: John or Mick, any other comments? uh, Any any other thoughts on on that?
4: I think that's, that's great advice. I mean, you know, we put out some some guidance on drive-through immunization. You have to kind of think outside the box because, you know, you're, you're going to get parents that are still skittish about coming into the office. And there's, you know, there, there's different ways you have to think now because we don't know what's going to happen in two months or we don't know what's going to happen in two weeks. And so um, you have to, you kind of have to th- think outside the box because these are challenging times.
1: A very good idea as well, but you know, again, the challenge is how, how many offices have the ability to have the cars lined up and the parking for that. And so, but I agree, out of the box, and whatever we do to get these vaccines in is going to be critical before
0: uh, fall and winter. Uh, make this maybe for you as well with, with the push for a vaccine, there's a chance something goes wrong. Uh, do we expect the vaccine to be available for first responders or mandated for them once it's released? Um, we also have to get flu vaccines. Uh, So will we have, uh, uh, so the question is, uh, I guess you you implied uh, in in your presentation that the CDC is already working with the state to get, if if the vaccine for coronavirus becomes available, that it will be available for first responders and healthcare workers first.
4: Right. So as far as a mandate goes, I I can't really speak to a mandate. I don't know what you know, what every hospital is going to require, if they're going to mandate it or not. I know that what CDC is talking about is because the vaccine is only going to be available in limited quantities, there's gonna be kind of a tiered system. So tier one is going to be healthcare personnel and it's gonna be first responders and it's gonna be those at high risk for, uh, for COVID. So those will be the people that will get the vaccine first before the general public. Whether or not it's mandated, That'll be up to other individuals to decide. As far as, um, you know, does a doctor need to have this vaccine in order to be able to work at the hospital? Well, then the hospital's probably going to have to have a policy that they're going to have to work out to figure out uh, whether that's, you know, they're going to need to to work on that. I mean,
1: certainly at-risk employees, the healthcare system would be the ones I would want to get it to get it so they can get back to work and not be at risk of getting severe COVID. I also want to make the comment, I think there'll probably be several vaccines licensed. There are 100 being developed. My bet is one vaccine is not going to be able to be made in quantities required, and we'll probably have several commercially available vaccines that might have slightly different schedules. So that'll be another complexity we have to work through uh, in hopefully, if we're lucky, winter and early next year.
3: Hi, this is Stephanie Knudsen as well, and I wanted to remind folks uh, uh, that families are going to be looking for places that are open um, to uh, provide their children with those well-child visits and vaccines. So, as a reminder, if uh, if uh, to to add your name, if you're having um, clinics, vaccine clinics, or if you know of resources to provide that information to uh, the two one one line so that um, they're trying to concentrate the resources so that as parents call those lines, they can find the available places and resources to get those health assessments and vaccines done. So that would be very helpful.
0: That's that's an excellent point, uh, Stephanie. And I think we, we can partner with you as well through our website to facilitate that information for parents, thank you. Um, quick question, is the flu vaccine safe for people with a severe latex allergy? Uh, John, I, I'm not uh, aware yeah, of that. Yeah, I, I
1: don't think that a latex allergy is a contraindication to in, immunizational influenza. It should be
0: fine. And uh, this, this is for any of the panelists. Um, is, can the state require flu vaccines for entry into schools as, as it exists for daycare? That
2: too.
4: <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Shervers. Um, <laughs> right now, it's required for, for daycare and for preschool under the age of five. One of the concerns that we've always heard as far as requiring it for school-age children is the logistics of an annual flu shot and getting those kids vaccinated in a provider's office every year. Um, The providers just don't have the ability to vaccinate every child up through the age of 18, and the infrastructure is just not there because we don't have local health departments that vaccinate on a yearly basis, they don't have the staff anymore. Uh, We don't have county health departments that vaccinate and so providers just don't have the manpower to be able to vaccinate on a yearly basis. So if we mandated school-aged children to be vaccinated with flu every single year, uh, logistically, it just wouldn't be possible for providers to be able to do that. And so that's the problem that we run into.
1: Yeah, I want to step back um, uh, to add to that. Why are we all talking about the flu vaccine in June during a pandemic from a different virus? Mm-hmm. The reason is we're very concerned coming to fall and winter, given the COVID background, already soaking up our beds, ICU beds, and the amount of work we've had to do to keep that under control. A large influenza outbreak <clears throat> would push us over the top, fill up the hospitals, and make us completely, as health systems, unable to manage. So. The more people we can get immunized and reduce the number of sick influenza patients the better we're going to be able to handle covid at the tail hopefully the tail end of this pandemic as a vaccine is released so i can't tell you how important it's going to be to reduce (laughs) those influenza numbers this fall so thus the talk it was so much talk about trying to get that vaccine into people
4: right and if i can just uh piggyback on to that dr schreiber I've been around for 30 years. This is the first time ever that CDC has purchased vaccine for adults and given it to us to distribute. So that's how important it is for CDC from CDC standpoint. They really want to improve upon those numbers. They're, they're really looking at that 50% nationwide and saying, we need to do something. And so for them to spend money and, and purchase 7 million doses to distribute to the states is, is really
0: extraordinary. A question for uh, Stephanie. This would be for you, I believe. Are, are there any school nurses on the task force to assist with student reentry ideas? Any suggestions on when, where, and who should do temperature screenings? Temperature screenings is a given. How will be tracing questions be best handled? So, it, so this is about school getting back to school. Lots of questions. Uh, so, uh, comments on that, uh, Stephanie. Uh, sure. So,
3: um, so what we did was um, the. The State Department of Education. Um, we we had a cohort or a small group of uh, school nurses that provided um, some additional information and responses to um, to sort of inform the reopening guidelines. And so uh, we've passed those uh, that information um, through our lead to our leadership uh, committee, who um, is in- is responsible for providing those guidelines. But I think primarily. Um, The advice, um, the health advice um, that is contained in the reopening guidelines is uh, more so from the State Department of Public Health. Uh, Since this is such a a huge public health issue and um, the numbers, the epidemiology, such and so forth, that's what's really driving and informing what will happen for the fall and what has gone into the guidelines. Um, So yes, uh, several constituents have Um, provided um, information and to help inform parents, um, healthcare providers, um, students, um, uh, school leaders, uh, principals, uh, teachers, uh, just a a cohort of people that have really helped to inform the guidelines. So everyone has really been included in this process.
0: Okay, great, thank you. Uh, This is from one of our pulmonologists. Uh, Current state guidelines for reopening schools do not include taking temperatures. Presumably, since fever is not a common presentation in children with COVID, on the other hand, whether febrile from COVID or other organisms, wouldn't it be a good idea for better general infection control? I think that's for you, also, Stephanie.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, again, it goes back to it, again, it goes back to the State Department of Public Health. And we're, we're looking at, as you can see, when, when uh, back in April, when, for example, the summer school guidance was released or May when it was released, we had a different uh, set of uh, guidance, didn't we? And so guidance has evolved uh, through the CDC. And so that's what we're telling folks is that as in information um, as we get updated information and guidance from the CDC, the State Department of Educa- the State Department of Public Health is also looking at those guidelines and then saying whether or not uh, what screenings, if any, um, will be done. Uh, so I'll go out on the limb. I'll go, yeah, I'll so, add to that. Yeah. I'll go out on the limb.
1: Um, I think the technology is there to easily screen all school employees and children walking in the building. And I think it would be a great idea if we could do that. The technology's there. It's non-invasive. I saw a a clip last night on the news. There's just a machine, just much like that light. You just walk past it. It's infrared. It tells you whether there's fever. And and, um, I think it would be a good investment for schools to do that. That's just my opinion of one infectious disease doctor. I am not a policymaker. It should be easy to do, and it might catch a few cases, and frankly, you might catch influenza and a few other things that you don't want in the school as well. but just my opinion you know
3: what one and one of the things about technology you know if, if it if it will uh, if it will have a glitch it it certainly will during the most inopportune times. and so we think about those large high school populations for example <laughs> that are walking through the building and staff and students and parents and visitors and you know it's 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 you know think about going to the circus or someplace and what happens? Well, I'm not uh, going to hold you
1: to compare. <laughs> I'm not going to hold you to compare a high school to a circus, but I, you did no, say no No,
3: no, no, <laughs> or a big event, a big event, a big happy event. I
1: know.
3: So, where you have, or to the movies, or someplace where you have crowds of people just going in, and and what that means. So, so uh, the, the the reopening guidelines they will be released uh, next week. So, um, I totally get the public health thing, and I totally get it from one health person to the next. I'm with you. <laughs> okay,
2: the only you, thing uh, I just want to add one quick thing ahead. to that is that, is that as Stephanie indicated, the guidance the guidance is going to be issued on Monday, but we're going to be spending the next couple of months looking at CDC data, looking at state data. Uh, the commissioner was talking about looking specifically at certain communities. If there's a border community in Rhode Island that sees an uptick in COVID, then we're looking at community spread as an indication of when we may want to Closed schools and things like that. So and Stephanie's in constant contact with all school nurses and school nurse supervisors uh, every day and so that guidance and more specific
0: guidance will go out uh, through, through those channels as well. Okay, thank you. It's, it's nine o'clock and, uh, and there's still a lot of questions that were not answered. We'll circulate them to the panel uh, so we can actually respond to uh, all the pediatricians that were on board and school nurses and others. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for the three of you online, John, for coming back here in real time. Appreciate it. Uh, Again, a week from today, we will not be on. It's uh, it's the July 4th holiday celebrated on the 3rd. We'll be back the week after that. Uh, And please send us your comments, questions, concerns. Good luck to all of you and thank you to the panelists. Bye-bye.